because of an invitation and um, we saw Mark there and it, I, it was just a pleasure to see him because he's a bodiless image to me for the last two years um, but it was just a joy to see him and I know he's on the ministry or the security ministry and Mark, so we just were talking about that for a minute. Mark, what do you do, let's say if you've mm -hmm. got two or three guys, what do you do to avoid a crossfire? Well, number one, if anybody ever has to pull a gun, things went way, way, way wrong. Sure, sure. Um, but whenever you go through a lot of the tactical training, you you know, it's almost impossible to take a shot because, you know, several things. Number one, the chances of you hitting something, I mean, this isn't the movies where every guy who shoots hits something, right? right? Plus adrenaline and fear and everything else is going to kick up. The, the odds of anybody taking a shot would be slim because the risk of, you know, hitting something. I know, but else. I'm asking, you know, so you've got it and something happens. Have, what do you do to protect against the crossfire? Because you've got multiple guys. It's not just one officer. Yes, yes. Well, what you do is everybody heads to the target. You know, because it, it, it depends on where you're at. Like if I'm in the back of the church and the guy's at the altar, nobody's going to take that shot. You know, that's like 75 feet. You're not, you know, that's like Olympic marksmanship type of shot. So you close the distance as much as you can and you do whatever you have to do to stop the threat. And you, you, you know, the, the part of the hardest thing about the, the Guardian Ministry is finding people with the right mindset. A lot of people want to do it or want to carry guns or want to do this, but they don't have the right mindset yeah, to, yeah. to be yep, safe yep, with it. Yep. Um, but, you know, ideally, you just, you know, you do what you have to do to stop the threat and avoid yeah. Yeah. And be smart when you're, and try and be smart when you're making that, if you, God forbid you ever got to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to get started here, but, um, yeah. wait, sorry. Bar Barbara, did you have something? Your light is going off and on? Oh, no. no. I don't know where my light is, but it shouldn't be going off and on. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Tracy. Welcome. We've just been talking about sunny things like security guards and guns at church. <laughs> Oh, I know. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, hi, Fred. Francis. Hi, Sue. Sorry to I didn't greet you. Uh, um, how are you guys all doing? Good. Yeah. Good. How are you doing? Good. Oh, by the way, yeah. No. By by the way, um, I was really grateful for your prayers, your concerns. Um, those of you who wrote, um, I, it turned out that I had a urinary infection that just put me down. Just I, I was just shocked at how enervated, wiped out I was. And but it was when it was diagnosed, they gave me antibiotics and some other medicines, and so I'm feeling much, much better, much, much better. Right now, you want to pray for Suzanne. <laughs> um, Okay, let's 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 get started. Um, I made a decision here, and I'm I'm not sure how popular or unpopular it's going to be, but I'm I'm going to go with it. I wrote the two groups, Francis and C's, asking for holiday dates, and um, 
most of the people who made plans during the summer made them during July at different different weeks for whatever reason. Um, I'd like not to cancel the whole summer. I just don't want to take time for granted. But I thought the wisest thing to do would be to um, take a break for all of July, even though that means interrupting Chesterton. Um, but it just seemed to me the wisest thing to do. So with us, what I'd like to do is um, cancel for the next month, July. We won't meet next week. And then we'll pick orthodoxy up again. I know that I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that starting to work and then dropping it, but um, we'll pick it up. Um, anyway, it, it just seems to me that's the best way to save the greater number of our group and still give everybody a chance to take a vacation and possibly even read. When we, when we come back, we'll finish Chesterton. We'll stay with the same plan to read two chapters a week, to cover two chapters a week. So we should be able to do Chesterton in a month. That leaves us the two Gospels, Matthew and John, and Revelation. Um, what I would like to think about doing is, and I need to talk with Father about that, he, he said he didn't think we could back, get back to church until end of summer, but if we pass on July and get back in August, my hope is that we can get together for a dinner, we'll potluck at the church together. Just, just, and if not here. Yeah, if, and if not at church here, just to get together for a potluck and, and have an evening together. It would just be nice to visit with you all and be reminded we all have bodies. God. Anyway, that's, that's our plan. So we won't, meet, we won't meet next week. We'll meet the first week of August. And um, I'll get back to you on dinner plans. But um, let's do that. If we stay to that, it seems to me we should be able to finish all of this uh, by Christmas or shortly after. I don't, I don't know how long it'll take to get through Matthew and John, hopefully not long, um, and Revelation. Revelation may take some doing, I'm not sure. Um, I, it's hard for me to make a judgment on the timing of these things right now because we're not doing stories. We're doing an expository work with Chesterton and uh, an apologetic and scripture so it's it's not quite the same thing i i'm in i'm in unfamiliar territory with all of this so um so anyway that's my suggestion um um if you guys have any responses let me know offline right not right now if if this presents a problem or you have any other suggestions write me a note okay but that's my suggestion if we do it we sh we should be able to finally <laughs> bring our work to this close that we've been talking about for two years. <laughs> so, okay? okay? Yeah. August 2nd. August 2nd. Pick up August 2nd. August 2nd. August 2nd. Suzanne said August 2nd. <coughs> um, we may plan a surprise gathering on August 10th, which is Suzanne's birthday. Robert, my birthday is the 12th. Oh, sorry, 12th. <laughs> Oh, I was trying to be good. I was trying to be good. Still got knocked down. Okay. Um, let's let's start. Any? It's good to see you all, by the way. And and once again, I'm really grateful.
grateful for your kind thoughts and your prayers. Um, any prayer request tonight? These are both stars, right? I started this. Yeah. No, no prayer requests. Okay. Um, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, just a brief reflection as a way into the prayer. The readings this morning were taken from that section where Abraham is bargaining God. I've always loved that section of the Bible. It, it shows the tough-mindedness of the chosen people, the Jewish people, how tough-minded they are that Abraham's going to bargain God down. God's thinking about destroying Sodom and Abraham says, what if they're 30 and then, you know, 25, 20 and I think he finally gets them down to 10. God's response to every one of those, Yahweh's response to every one of those was, if there's 30, if there are 30 innocent people, I will spare Sodom. Same with 20, 15, 10. He will spare them. One of the ironies of that that exchange, there are, there are a couple that I enjoyed, one I've mentioned, that the tough-mindedness of Abraham, that he, he does not back off standing up honestly, being honest with God. He's not angry. He's not throwing things at him. He's, he's concerned for other people. He's really concerned about the innocence and his... There, it's a, there's a strong sense of justice in Abraham. You know, what if there are innocent people in that town? What will God do? So he must have spoken to God's heart. I, I, I don't believe any of us look at God as being a God who would overlook the innocent or be cruel or unjust. That's not our God. So he's very tough-minded, but his regard is the innocence of people. He doesn't want to see innocent people hurt. And he's tough-minded. I mean, what is that but a blessing? I wish more of us were tough-minded in the world you know, we're, with respect to innocence. So Abraham's going up against God. Anyway, the other irony for me is that um, Sodom's going to be destroyed. So even while Abraham, who doesn't know Sodom, I mean, except from the outside, God knows. Um, Sodom will be destroyed. Which, in the context of the story, presumably means there were no innocent people there. So in one sense, it's an indication of how endemic, how pervasive corrupt, corruption in a city can become. We know that um, Lot and his wife leaves. They leave, the family leave. But even Lot's wife turns back. She does not want to let go of the past. And she's turned into stone. So one of the great one of the reasons I love that passage is its dramatic irony. I'm assuming Mark will hear this because I I'm still holding on to that shocked realization when he you know the full force of irony hit him when we were looking at Oedipus and it was just a wonderful expression of seeing. Um, one of the ironies of the situation is Abraham's doing everything he can as a human, but Sodom's going to be destroyed. So um, they're all the, the world is governed by ironies. There's just so much we don't see, so much we don't see. So, and it goes to the point of what Chesterton's arguing in the opening chapters of Orthodoxy. So, 
Um, strengthen us, Lord, um, with the spirit of loving mystery. Um, strengthen us with the love of your commandments. Help us to love your commandments, to obey them, take them seriously. Um, where we fail, help us um, to avail ourselves of the sacraments, to go to confession, to take seriously the Eucharist. You offer help all the time. We are fallen creatures, deeply fallen. Strengthen us in our fall. Um, take away our blindness. Help open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, to wonder, to mystery, to make a greater place for mystery in our lives. That's the whole plea of Chesterton's opening chapters. To not, to not get caught in the narrow circles of our mind, what Blake calls mindful man, uh, manacles. Mind forged. Mind forged manacles. Those habits of thought that shrink our world, close us in. Help us to stay open to you, to the wonders of our world, to be glad. Um, I ask for a special blessing on all of us here, for any burdens any of us carries. Most of us do. Um, help ease our hearts. Um, watch over those um, we're concerned about. Um, and let your blessing be with us in all that we do this night. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> For our prayer tonight, what I... Um, oh, sorry? Oh, sorry for the, for our poem tonight. Holy cow, it's getting worse and worse. Just worse and worse. Um, I want to take the last part of the first section of Little Gidding. Um, I think most of you were present when we did Eliot's Quartets. I, I know that was a while ago, and it's not an easy poem collection of poems to hold on to, but to me it's the most extraordinary piece of poetic work in the 20th century. Just in view of what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and particularly last time we met when we talked about Aragon and his visit to the dead, um, I want to come back to that just for a minute. I, I want to get on to Chesterton, but I really would... I don't want to squeeze that because it was just too important, and I thought it was a difficult discussion. And, um, it, it played with so many of the beliefs that we have, and one of them, one of them, even though we didn't touch on it this way, is um, the fact that the damned are unredeemable. They're, they chose evil. Um, so they're, they're there in hell as a choice. Um, so um, what, what, any lights to throw on this? What do we make of it? It's a great work, and but it the final turn comes when Aragon visits the land of the dead and manages to list that group. So we, we had the dead very much on our, our minds, and, and I suggested it's important to think about what we're doing when we take the Eucharist, because in a sense it's, remember, it's that act of um, anamnesis, of going back to the past, the dead, something from another state, and bringing it forward. So with each Eucharist, we're going back with Christ who died and are, are with him as he offers himself to us now in the presence. 
So it's not just remember me, it's, you know, do this in remembrance of me, and, but an enactment, an act takes place. We reenact the sacrifice with him. That immediately involves the dead. It came from the dead. The two things, two of the reasons that we turn to Christ are that he's defeated death and he's defeated sin. By the way, those are the two openings of Chesterton's work. Um, none of us is going to defeat death. We're all going to die. And I'm assuming, I, I hope I'm not out of place here, that none of us can overcome our sins without help, that, that they're just too great. So we turn to Christ for divine help to do those things we can't. So this turning to him and whatever that means in the way of turning to the dead is something I don't think we think about enough. And you know from the works that we've been reading, the dead has been a major trope, major topic from the very beginning, the Iliad, the Odyssey. So um, this, this is from Little Gideon. It's the fourth of the four quartets. Um, you don't have to look at it. You, if you have it handy, you can. But remember that it opens with what I think are some of the most extraordinary lines of poetry in the 20th century. Midwinter spring is its own season, sempitemeral through sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. When the short day is brightest with the frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold that is the heart's heat. I believe it's one of the most perfect descriptions of the Holy Spirit entering the human soul. He's, he's, um, he's using a metaphor to describe, he's, he's literally describing a point in um, midwinter, spring. It's as if in the middle of spring, there's a season in which winter cold has its own life. It's like it interrupts, but it's there. And it's, um, it's a, so it's a literal description. I mean, there are moments like that, particularly in the, in the Northeast. But it's also a, um, a description of what goes on when the Holy Spirit enters a human soul. Frost and fire... Opposites, countries meet, and out of it comes some kind of a new life. So it's it's an extraordinary opening. But um, in the second part, when he when he's using the metaphor of, of taking a journey, if you come this way, if you go this way, if you're going towards what, it very much speaks to what we've been talking about. You know, when when I keep using the example of of taking Eucharist. When we take the Eucharist and we're on, we're, on, we're on the way to the car in the parking lot, where are we? Name that place. We've been calling it the apophatic. That's what Eliot would call it, the apophatic. That um, our, our knowledge comes through what we don't know. There are things beyond knowing that are really important for us because if we go around all the time thinking we know everything, there's a lot we don't see and that we're blind to. So he uses the metaphor of this coming this way and approaching this thing. I just want to read the last part of the first part of section one in Little Gidding because it speaks so directly to the dead and the importance of listening to the dead. And, and let me remind you, 
At the very beginning in the Iliad, Patroclus appears to Achilles after he died. Achilles wants to embrace him. He can't. He's a ghost. Speaks to him. And he says, there's nothing there. The Odyssey, um, Odysseus goes to the land of the dead. He speaks to Achilles. Um, he gets his calling from Tiresias, the prophet. Aeneas goes to the land of the dead. He speaks to his father, Anchises, and gets his calling. Dante goes to the land of the dead. There has not been a major figure that we've read in the, ep- in the epics that has not involved the afterlife, the underworld. The condition for going home in, in, in the context in which we're talking about it, I can say the Catholic faith, is that we, we make a place for death. If we don't make a place for death, we will not get home. That's a condition. Odysseus has to go there. Aeneas has to go there. Odysseus has to go there. If Aragon doesn't go there, that battle is over. So, one of the elements of our faith is that it has to make a place for the dead. We have to hear them. Um, you know that the modern world does everything it can to shun death, to keep it away. We, we, we put um, funeral graveyards outside of town. Always outside. We hide them. Uh, one of the reasons I loved New Hampshire and the house that we lived on was right next to a graveyard. I just, I just felt, I just felt so at home. <laughs> I know that's going to sound odd, but I, 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 I centrally mean that. I just felt at home. Um, anyway, this is the, this is the last part of section one of Little Gidding. Okay. If you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere, at any time or at any season. It would always be the same. You would have to put off sense in motion. You are not here to verify. Instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report. It's not why we're here. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying, of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. I'm going to read it again because I love it. Bear with me, okay? Be patient with me, guys. If you come this way, and by the way, because I don't want to do this afterwards, when you, when you hear this, keep in mind the Lazarus. Because I don't, I can't, I myself can't recall of many parables in which Christ goes to the dead. But in the Lazarus story, you know he does. Lazarus goes to the dead, and and all the brothers want somebody to go back from the dead to remind them because they're all going to go to hell. And Christ said they didn't listen to Moses; they're not going to listen to the brothers. So that's one of the few passages in which Christ gives a parable in which a person actually speaks from the land of the dead to us. And it's a startling, a little bit frightening revelation. 
Remember, the, the, the rich guy didn't take care of Lazarus. He was too concerned with his own money and his own comfort, his own wealth. So he went through life protecting himself, and, and that's what he's got. If you come this way, if you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere, at any time or at any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and motion. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or care report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid, and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. <coughs> Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. Um, okay, just a few moments. I'm just going to throw this open for you guys and um, last thoughts on Aragon. Let me just try to string together the events just to uh, so I don't make this easy on you guys. <laughs> you know, I don't want to make things easier for you guys. Um, it's, it's not my call in life. I think you already know that. Um, Arwen is dying. She made a choice early in her life to love Aragon, and she knew to do that she'd have to give up her mortality. So she, cho she chooses mortality to her to her, it's a gift to die. Um, she knows she will only have one life, and she wants to spend it with Aragon. So she makes a choice to love him, knowing that it will cost her her life. I mean, that's as close to Christ as I can think of. So you've got that act. <coughs> She's dying just from having accepted her mortal nature. Remember, she was out of the community. She was leaving in response to her father, who didn't want her to stay. But in the middle of that trek, as she's leaving, she decides against it and turns back and goes to her father and says, I'm staying. She made the choice. Her father, the king of the elf, is not at ease with that. It's, it's another instance of a father being slightly out of tune with his children. He wanted the best for her what he without, without, he wanted the best for her without understanding what the best was in terms of love. It was in terms of what his understanding was, not love, and whatever mystery that involved. Is that clear? It's really important. He's a good man. He's a genuinely good man. He, he wanted the best for her. But, but the best wasn't conceived of in terms of a love, which is, ins I mean, love can be insane. We all know that. But it can also um, draw people into a mystery which so many of us don't understand a lot of the time. <coughs> so she goes back, and she's there, and she starts to fade just by her mortality, by having accepted it. Her father is worried and knows she's dying, she, and he goes to Aragon. She's the one. She's the one who says, reforge the sword. So it's Arwen, in her love for Aragon, that she, she this is so amazing, she knows he's got a calling, 
And something of that directs her. It's as if she's saying, you can't do other than this. You have to go on and accept your crown. So she completely gives herself to that, and it's um, she's the one who says, reforge the sword. The father takes the sword to Aragon. Remember in that meeting when Aragon and the king are, um, was it Denethor or Theoden? Um, Theoden are looking for armies because um, Minas Theris is under attack and they know the city is going to be destroyed. So the king comes and he gives him the sword and says, visit the land of the dead, go to the land of the dead. And he goes and says, fight with me, <coughs> fight with me. Everybody opposes him, but um, and they say, we owe allegiance to nobody but the king of Gondor. It's at that point that Aragorn raises his sword. It's as if at that moment um, he asserts his authority. So a number of things have been given to him, from Erwin, from the, from the uh, elfin king, and now he's there in the dead, in the land of the dead. Um, they seem to refuse him. He and Legolas and Gimli leave, and they're outside of the mountain, and um, Aragorn is looking defeated as if he's risked himself for nothing. It was a risk. He didn't know what the outcome was. I, that's absolutely to see. He didn't go into this the way Americans are going, hedge your bets, have insurance, buy insurance policies, so you make sure you don't lose. He knew in going into the land of the dead that the cost of it would be his life. You don't return from the dead. So he knew he was risking everything. It's very much like Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, all of them. He goes into, into the dead and knowing that the likely it won't come out. He comes out and feels defeated because he feels that he wasn't successful in enlisting them. And then the king of the dead comes in and says, we will fight. And you know what happens, the battle turns. But anyway, I just wanted to give a minute to that. Any last thoughts on what that means? Because the whole of the action of three books, the destruction of that city and Sauron's potential success, turns on that moment of, of involving the dead. The dead have nothing to lose. They're dead. But they're there because they dishonored themselves. They didn't obey their king. They committed crimes. Um, they're there. Um, and it's, it's what Aragon does. Remember he says, I will release you from your bond. Um, and they choose to do it. Any thoughts before we leave that? That so immediately involves the dead. And I'm, you know, the, 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 Christ's parable about Lazarus and the lines that I just read you from Eliot. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire. That's an image of the Holy Spirit. The, um, the communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. What do the dead have to teach us? What should we be paying attention to? Is there something there for us to be hearing that we're not listening to? Is our love of comfort, security, not wanting risks, um, keeping us from dealing with something that in itself seems very, very frightening? Last question to close, the Lord of the Rings. Tracy. By the way, I don't know that I said hello. It's good to see you again. 
Thanks, you too. <laughs> um, well, I think given all that you've uh, outlined, I think the answer is to the last question is yes, we do stay in our comfort zones and um, forget, I think, that what is it that Jesus says he comes to set the world on fire, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, it's a contradiction, of course, to if you believe that and then to live a safe and comfortable life, you know, like to not make, not take risks or make hard decisions. Yeah. yeah. So we all shy away from those. I know I do. Um, but I really thought about your question after, because I was struggling to, keep up, you know, like understand what you were asking. And I think Sue kind of hit that nail on the head. And so this, I have a question back to you, <laughs> you know. Wait, before you go to Sue, like we only see the top of your head in your picture because it sounds to me like this is going a lot to there. Thanks. Just, I just want you to be ready here. Well, all of the writers that you mentioned, Dante, you know, Homer, they and are all the, their heroes, you know, her, Achilles, and I think even in Eliot's poem, they're talking about going to the dead to get a piece of wisdom, something that you need. And it's saying, you know, that the dead know more than we do because they they're dead. They right. they see it all now, you know. Right. And um, but Aragon, is this what Sue said? Aragon goes not to 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 free them as a redeem as a redeemer is how I see it, um, to those to those dead. He gave, you know, he freed them from that bond, as you said. And, of course, he got something in return. He got, you know, their uh, help with this battle. Um, and he became the king, which he had been avoiding, you know, and avoiding and, like, hiding from. So I can't, I, I, I understand all these pieces, but I can't put them together. <laughs> Yeah. I just all I can say don't feel alone. Don't I mean don't feel right. alone with that. Sue, Sue, did you have go ahead? Did you have something? You, I did. I, I, I guess since I'm sort of called upon. Um, to me, this is our chance. This is indicative of our chance and our call to step up and do what Christ has given us the opportunity to do. So, Aragon has an opportunity to go into the dead. We have death as our end result. We can take that as our end, or we can accept Christ and his challenges, and have more than that. And I don't not plan to conquer any armies. Just seems to me God will provide some challenge and I need to be aware to take it when it comes, whatever that is. So that that's what it kind of said to me was was you go into the land of the dead, which you're going to be at some point, because humans are. And can you make the most of it? That's the best I've got. Thanks. Tracy, did you have a response or? Go ahead. 
One of the things I want to make sure here is because you know that one of the things I'm most wary of as a, as a human being is the way in which the modern mind is given to abstractions, that it's so much easier to live in abstractions than in the concrete present when everything about our faith says not, not before, not after, now, 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 now. And to live concretely in our bodies involves a tremendous... It's much easier to live in... Um, 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 regrets in the past or desires or expectations you know, for the future than it is to live in the risks of the present moment in our bodies. Um, I mean, it seems to me one of the marks of the Catholic Church is, that it is constantly calling us into our body here now, con- constantly. Um, we, we should not hate the body the way Calvin did or Luther. Um, um, the, um, Christ entered the body, so coming into that moment. One of the interesting things about what happens in Aragon is that he's not just entering an abstraction. There are the multitudes of the dead, and it's, and it's those multitudes that are, are put in play by what he does. So in some sense, it's, it's as if this great unleashed power, or this power, unharnessed power, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, is there. So when he does it, it's not just himself, it's, it's all the dead. Um, fear is taken out of play. He, he enters, he, he conquers that himself. But in doing that, he, it's as if he calls into being this extraordinary power of all these humans. Um, I, so I just want to be, I don't want to leave this in an abstraction, the land of the dead. You know, there's something, it's an amazing power that he taps into. And it's only by virtue of that that he can turn the battle. Fred, go ahead. Just a, a final thought to what's already been said, but it, it seems to me, and I, I think Chesterton, Chesterton kind of speaks to this in the first two chapters. It's, it's that final acknowledgement that this world is not my final destination, that the embracing of the, the dead, as we've seen all the way through, our works basically ultimately leads to you know the final freedom if you will that releases you from all the trappings of this world and a recognition that there's something greater ahead and that gives you incredible strength I mean you lose that fear you know and I, I apologize for this but Boethius speaks to that too you, you hang on to all these things well power, whatever it is, and when you finally let all that go, and you realize that there's something greater than what we're experiencing here, it's it's an incredible release of power and strength and capability, that, and this embracing of the death, death, this willingness to, to deal with death, and, and prevail, you know, is, is the ultimate strength that you need to move on. Yeah. Whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's well put. Because all of us are gonna die. It's not like this you know, it's not like we can avoid it. It's there. I mean the church's words are memento mori, memento mori, remember death. We're supposed to we're supposed to carry it with us daily. It's our end. 
you know, it shouldn't, um, when it hits us, it, it's in some sense shouldn't be a surprise. We're supposed to be preparing for it all the time. Because it's the one thing we can't escape. <laughs> it's there. So, yes to that. Um, okay, any last thoughts before we turn to Chesterton? Let me ask you before we begin Chesterton, because this is a big thing for me. We're not, this is the first work that we have written. By the way, you guys are amazing. I don't want to give some of you big heads, because some of you already have heads that are too big. Mark's not looking up. Um, I'm so proud of you guys, and it's such a joy. You can't imagine. I mean, so five minutes ago, Whoever it was was running through the or Tracy, I guess, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. You know, do you guys realize that you've read those things, and that there's probably one percent of our country who knows who's done what you guys have done? It's just sort of amazing. I mean, they couldn't even begin to they couldn't even begin to deal with the question that we're asking. And and um, Lord of the Rings is a contemporary movie. The, the great, it's probably the most I, important I, artistic work of the 20s. You have led us through all of those works. <laughs> and I I joined because, oh, it sounded interesting, but I bless Marianne from the bottom of my heart because I have read and reread things that I never fully understood when I read them the first time or never read them. And I thank you for that. It's really been a blessing. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. You all know that the Thanksgiving is felt on my side, too. I mean, it's been a blessing to do this. You guys have been so faithful. So, anyway, the, thank you, Sue. The, the interesting, one of the interesting things here is Lord of the Rings is contemporary work. It's, I think it's the most popular work in the 20th century. And the, the film was probably the sold more. I mean, it was, it, it was worldwide. How many people would even pick up that question of, What's Aragon doing in the dead? And put it in the context that we did. I mean, you guys have such a depth of vision now, you know, in, in the way you look at things. And um, anyway, I was sort of amazed just to think that we're even talking about this together. So, um, okay, a few, a few comments in Chesterton. Um, Chesterton's an amazing man. I think he, I think he's the most one, maybe the most amazing man of the 20th century. He was born at the end of the 19th century um, into a proper English um, Christian family. I think it was Unitarian, if I remember correctly, or had Unitarian inclinations. At some point, I think he became more conventional and and was a practicing Anglican. I'm not sure. Um, very artistic, um, and had a truly, in some ways, the most amazing mind of anybody in the 20th century. There is not any great giant um, um, who produced a work that had an influence on the modern world that he did not take on. And I'm thinking now, just to put this into context, I want everybody to just think about this seriously. When we read Hemingway, we talked about the way in which modern artists at the beginning of the 20th century were all influenced by naturalism, by what came out of Darwin, 
that they were all writing and believed that if you didn't write in a naturalistic tradition, you weren't an artist. Because science had shown that this is the way things are. And we talked about that, that, that one of the things that marked the sciences is this assumption of determinisms, that man does not have free will, he's a product of whichever scientist you want to pick, Freud, Marx, Darwin, any of them. He's a product of these forces over which he has no control. He can do something to modify them, but basically he's caught. Um, Hemingway was formed by that when we looked at um, Old Man of the Sea. We saw that his depiction of the universe, the birds eating birds and fish and fish eating men, and you know, that that governed it. What made Santiago heroic is that um, he survived that. He, he endured so that he didn't just bring home this trophy that he could show off to show how good he was. Look what a good hunter he is, like hunters do. He had nothing to show except um, the courage and the spirit of endurance, the things that the boy really admired in him. When we read Dostoevsky, we were reading Dostoevsky at a time when all the Enlightenment ideas were entering Russia, and we saw what happened in Russia. I mean, we experienced it immediately, the dislocations in the Russian character, that it had been this traditional Christian world, and suddenly these um, Enlightenment ideas enter and divide Russia everywhere. And it, in, in one sense, we can say it creates conditions out of which communism or socialism would come eventually. Um, in America, the two writers who are writing at, at roughly the same time, who are aware of the problem, are... Melville and Hawthorne. We read Moby Dick, we read Scarlet Letter. Moby Dick, I think, is probably the greatest work in America in the uh, 19th century ever written because it's dealing with these things head-on. Ahab is, lives in fury at the idea that he's determined by all these forces and the belief that behind them all is this malice, this sinister malice, this inherent evil. I mean, that comes directly from Calvin. This inherent evil in the physical world is directing things. And the, the, the idea of that is so outrageous to him that he wants to do everything he can to fight, get that evil, and smash it back, get back at it. You know, my reading of, of Ahab is, or I mean, Moby Dick is not, that is not the Moby Dick theme. Everything that we get is filtered through Ishmael, and Ishmael goes through a number of changes. So we're watching somebody deal with those things who isn't overwhelmed by them, who isn't overcome by them. So that's at the end of the 19th century, beginning of 20th century. We've, so many of the readings have taken us there, even if we've not you know, explored the scientific background or the, the reasons for it in depth. Chesterton's taking them all on. He took on all the, all the great thinkers, um, Hills, Huxley, Darwin, Marx, you could go on and on. But he didn't do it as a philosopher or a politician. He did it as a journalist. Um, he was speaking to ordinary men using ordinary language, but, but he was dealing with the most complicated ideas. And he could, al he could always reduce them to simple statements. Who can do that? Not an easy thing to do as a writer. Some people have accused him of playing with paradoxes. He even says in Orthodoxy in the opening chapters that he does not, that George Bernard Shaw could, you know, 
spin off 10 paradoxes in a minute, um, given his mind. And he said he was often accused of being a facetious writer. He said that's the last thing he wanted to be accused of because he wasn't. He is humorous. He's, um, he is satirical. He, he has fun. But there's always an element of something very serious in what he's dealing with, even though it's presented in humorous terms. And he loves alliteration. I, I, I can't believe any of you have missed that, because you, if you've read Chesterton for a page, you'll see him lining up. You all know what alliteration is, right? Where you repeat initial constant sounds like miracles and, and marble or mom or, you know, you just... He, he's Because it's a way of helping the reader to reinforce something, to grasp it. Because if it's repeated, you get the idea and you can hold on to those things. So he's a great, great writer. I think the my own sense, I, I can't document this, and I, um, but I, I think some people recognize this. I think Chesterton took some, so many of his gifts as a writer from Dickens because Dickens was satirical, straightforward, and his writing, if any of you have read Dickens, you know is absolutely clear. There's that same facetious power and speed Chester could, Chester could write off an essay in 20 minutes. It would take me 10 months to do. And I'm not exaggerating. Just not exaggerating. So, a wonderful man. Late in his life, he converted to Catholicism. And it shocked England. Um, his view of England is that England had become increasingly decayed since the 18th century. Um, the, the, I think the beginnings of it for him are the Civil War that we looked at involving the Presbyterians and the, um, and the Congregationalists you know, during Milton's time, that England had become a plutocracy, plutocracy, that a love of money governed everything that it did, that um, merchants, um, people aspiring for wealth, became the rulers of England. So England tra was transformed with from one of these great nations in the Middle Ages, Christian Middle Ages, to a, a country that in his mind had become puritanical, um, self-serving, and had lost its way. So when he converted to Catholicism late in his life, it was just a shock and a blow because he was one of the most respected men in England. His work, Everlasting Man, we won't do it, I've mentioned it to you a number of times, is the one work that C.S. Lewis um, holds is responsible for his conversion. Um, he, he over and over again he's praised Chesterton for his influence. He, um, when I going back to orthodoxy for the first time, and I don't know what it's been 25 years, I'm finding C.S. Lewis everywhere. It's not the same spirit. Chesterton is humorous. He's witty, loves the body, um, loves having fun. But you can find the germ of an argument. See, so you can find the germ of so many Chester, uh, Lewis's arguments in sections of Chesterton. Chesterton really did teach C.S. Lewis a lot. Um, the church has called him the apostle of the ordinary. The apostle of the ordinary, the familiar, the apostle of paradoxes. He loves ordinary things. He loves ordinary things. He's not a man to live in abstract. He's not angelic. He does not live in abstractions. Um, he loved the pubs. He did everything he could to resist England when Link England was trying to close the pubs down. 
you know, during Prohibition. <clears throat> he thought that that was one of the worst crimes against England, that people needed to have a place, particularly workers. The workers needed a place to go sometimes to get drunk. Um, he was a great opponent, opponent of, uh, you call it, when you try to control the um, genetics, because genetic, the, the people in the sciences whose specialties were genetics were arguing that there were certain things that people could do to control birth, control the population, get rid of certain kids, certain races. Chesterton was horrified at that. That was a popular movement during his time. Contraceptions, um, I mean, everything that's happened since abortion and other things would have been abhorrent to him. He saw the most important thing in civilization as the human family and the church. That they were the only two institutions that kept civilization going. If you look at every one of the hot topics in America, in the West today, every one of them um, is tearing at the family. If a man and a woman can get divorced, if a man and a woman can marry one man or one woman, and marriage is no longer sacred, I'm saying this really seriously, if marriage is no longer sacred, then why can't one man marry another man? If you take away the sacred character of marriage so that people can get married whatever they want and an individual is only an individual and he can separate whenever he wants, what's to hold them together? Break that bond and there's no reason for a marriage to consist of four people, three people, or five. And there may even eventually be a reason. We got close to this in a Supreme Court case here in America where a Supreme Court justice ruled almost in favor of sodomy. So Chesterton is living right at that time when all the sciences are taking a hold and um, he's watching what the popular mind does with it. And one of the wonderful things, it's like reading Chaucer. It, it's rare to see Chesterton blow up. I've seen him get really testy, really in a couple of essays. Like I have to try to dig them up. But for the most part, he is genial and humorous. He has no bones about going at people at all. He and George Bernard Shaw were close friends. And you know from orthodoxy that he has some very direct criticisms of Shaw. He's very upfront. So he's a man who could speak the truth and skewer somebody and smile, laugh. He had, a, he had a good heart. Huh? And still love him. Yeah. Say again? And still love him. And love the man. Yeah, and love the, whoever it was. He just had a really good heart, an amazing, amazing heart. So... Okay, um, before we start, I have a question for you guys because I, I want to get into the first two chapters and just look at some passages to see what you mean. This is going to be very, very different for me because we're not dealing with a story, a, you know, with a plot. There is something of a plot here, and we'll get to it. But, but we're dealing with a work of exposition. It's, a, an, it's an apologetic work. So before we begin, I'm just curious, how are you guys finding, and I really would like you guys to be honest. Don't don't cover anything up because you know that I really like this guy. I would really like some honesty. How are you guys finding him? This is very, we've not done anything like this together. Or may, well, we have with a, um, Abolition of Man. That's, except for that, we've been in literature. So how are you guys, how are you guys finding Chesterton? I'm really curious. Karen, how are you finding him? 
Where are you? Are you in the South Seas or where? Where are you tonight? <laughs> I'm in Flower Mound. <laughs> uh, I'm finding it um, uh, where I have to reread sections because I'm not quite following it. Yeah, yeah. And I can only read so many pages at a time before it wears me out. And, have to stop. <laughs> and you feel like throwing the book. <laughs> do you not no, give? I, do you not give anybody any ideas, please? <laughs> I would think the one thing you would be grateful for, the one thing you would go down on your knees for every night, is that he writes in sentences and he uses he uses punctuation. Exactly. <laughs> I find him to be uh, incredibly relevant, and I can't. You know, it's like it's just like when we read Lewis. It's so like comforting to understand that what's happening now happened then <laughs> and and his courage to say something different that's something that I admire because I find that missing today yeah yeah and and, and not only that but a courage with such a great heart you know lots of people have courage but and we're grateful for but how many people have that kind of courage with that kind of mind Fred, Francis, how are you guys finding them? Well, I, I actually find it pretty interesting, but I did take your advice. I, I stopped worrying about all the names that popped up, save one. Han Hanwell popped up so many times I had to look out <laughs> and I was surprised to find it was an insane asylum in London of all things but then all of a sudden a lot of it started to make a lot more sense say, so, yeah. but I, I guess my takeaway from the first two chapters is he's, he's he's really trying to focus attention on I think his, his comment about someone who is self-satisfied are completely self-reliant yep. and and how that can be you know a fallacy you know perhaps insanity even because and we I, I think you know we see it a lot today you know where you where you you hear people talking and they're so focused on a single thing and an excruciating detail <laughs> Uh, you know, they're an expert on, in their own mind, of whatever that is. But in the grand scheme of things, that's so small. Yeah, yeah. Relative, you know, and I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, so I won't be specific about it. But you can hear someone pontific pontificate to the nth degree on something, and I, at least, I find myself saying, "Are you paying attention at all?" You know, with what's going on in in the real world, because how can you say that if you're if you are? And I I think that's what he's he's trying to get at is you can get so in your mind about something, and you're 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 enlightened, um, you know, in your own mind, and nothing anybody else ever says really matters anymore. <laughs> no. yeah. And so the whole the whole concept of having intelligent conversation is is gone. Yeah. So they won't entertain any other ideas except their own. And so, you know, he, he defines that concept and then there's the alternative where 
you're so out there in fairyland that you're just not centered at all anymore. And his, his, as I get it anyway, he's a proponent of the ordinary man because you've got one, one foot in reason and one foot in mysticism and it makes you a much more well-rounded, open, broad-minded right. uh, person capable right. of, of, you know, great things. Or relating to the world, anyway, yeah. Right. So anyway, that's sort of what I've gotten out of the, I, right. I get out of the first two chapters, anyway. Yeah. Anybody else offer a, just my, my, it's just a general, any, what I'm really asking is, how are you finding Chesterton? Are you, just, just a, as a general question before we start looking at the... Any other comments before we turn to the book? I want to know what Mark thinks. Mark, Suzanne wants to know what you think. Um, it's deep. Uh, there's a lot to unpack <laughs> when you start reading this. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Because I find myself, you know, underlining a lot. And it's amazing to me that good writers, and it doesn't matter from what time period or what genre, mm -hmm. when they write a sentence, it's like that whole sentence could be a book. <laughs> and but and and the, the, the thing that I, I guess I struggle with is you read one of those sentences and you're so focused on it you kind of forget about all the other stuff. But I know it's gotta be important. <laughs> But it it just doesn't yeah. stay with me yeah. as much. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, it's 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 a hard read, I think, because it makes you think. I was gonna and say. And it makes yeah. you think, not like oh there was something on this page that is nice. No, it's like every other sentence <laughs> is something you really need to focus on to try and grasp. Yeah. So I, I guess it's cumbersome reading. I don't. I don't. It's not bad. But it does make you think a lot. Yeah, yeah. Debbie, go ahead. Is your, your yeah? Go ahead. I I, uh, I I absolutely agree that it's it is very deep and and Karen, you're right. Um, you can just read so much and and then you have to sort of set it aside and think about it. But what I really enjoy is I think he's got a great sense of humor. Oh, yes. I love the way he writes. Yeah. I mean it's. Because I, even the the opening two sentences of the first chapter, I started to laugh. Even a bad shot is dignified if when he accepts a duel. I mean, okay, cool. Yes, I, he's he has a great way of expressing things. Yes, in a real, uh, in a very real way. I yeah. mean, what he's saying is important, but it also makes you chuckle, which. Yeah. Yeah. I always find is yeah, nice. Good. Yeah. Okay, let's start here. Just to, to pick up a note. <laughs> Fred, I don't know about you you need to let go of Boethius here. Because I don't know how you could read that first chapter and not know that Hanwell was in a sane asylum. God. God. Anyway, on page don't go there, but I but I just to pick up what some of you guys are saying. On page twenty five he says and I've described at length my vision of the maniac for this reason, that just as I'm affected by the maniac, so I'm affected by most modern thinkers. That unmistakable... Now, hold on. He's taking off... So here's my general question. I don't want to go there, because we're going to carry this with us for a while. What's wrong with the modern mind? 
I mean, most of us live in this world not thinking anything's wrong. We all jobs. We go to work. We come home. We, you know, we live lives. He's saying there's something wrong in the modern world. And, and by the way, if if it needed the church behind it, remember, the one of the popes, I think it was Pius, some time ago, said, "America is a culture of death. It's a culture of death. What's wrong with the modern mind?" Chesterton's taking on not just a few authors. He's taking on a way of being, and he's speaking directly to it from his own experiences, even though he's not making his own experiences the center of everything. He's not, this is not an author speaking about himself, except only occasionally. His concern is the world outside of him, and he's saying there's something seriously wrong. So he says, um, and I've described at length my vision of the maniac for this reason, that just as I'm affected by the maniac, so I'm affected by most modern thinkers. That unmistakable mood or note that I hear from Hamwell. I hear also from half the chairs of science and seats of learning today. <laughs> I don't know that that's going to inspire much confidence in our learning institutions today, but I happen to agree with Chesterton, and, and I'm saying that from somebody who's lived in them, I mean, as a teacher, and and, and you've heard me commenting them on for the what six years now, but so he's not he's not he's not talking about when he talks about insanity and madness, he's not just talking about a few inmates. <laughs> what he's saying is that the culture in general is insane. <laughs> There's something wrong with our modern mind. If that that may be too sweeping, but I just want to throw it out there to to be as simple as I can to get going. I want to turn to the first chapter in Debbie's words because I love... Um, I want to read a couple of passages. What I'd like to do tonight is just read passages to isolate on a, a couple and um, to have some discussion about them because I hope it will open up some of the problems that you guys are talking about you know, in, in dealing with things because they're worth looking at. Anyway, it begins... The only possible, so wait, sorry. So Chesterton in, I think, 1905, wrote the book called Heresy, or Heretics, Heresy. He's, he's only superficially Christian. He's not writing as a Christian apologist in some sense. He's writing as a journalist to a general population. So he, what he's doing, as a, already a young man, he's addressing what he sees as pervasive disorders in his time. They're pervasive, just like the, those we still live with today. Pervasive, they're there. And what he does is pick out a major number of the, the most influential thinkers of the 19th century. Mills, Shaw, Huxley. I mean, you can go down the list. Um, most of them are determinists. And they're the ones who are influencing the way people think. So their influence is spreading. It's pervasive. So he's responding to that in heresy. After that book was published, um, one guy came up, as you know from the beginning here in Orthodoxy, and criticized it and said, it's all good and well for somebody like Chesterton to criticize what the rest of it are doing. Let's hear from him what his own philosophy is. So the incentive for this book is that challenge by writers who are um, responding to the position he took in, in uh, Heretics. Um, the opening lines of Orthodoxy. 
The only possible excuse for this book is that it's an answer to a challenge. Even a bad shot is dignified when he accepts a duel. When some time ago I, I published a series of hasty but sincere papers under the name of Heretics, several critics for whose intellect I have a warm respect. It's just like him to do that. He's complimenting, praising his opponents. You know, for the quality of their intellects. Said that it was all very well for me to tell everybody to affirm his cosmic theory, but that I had carefully avoided supporting my precepts with examples. So he's going to answer um, that challenge. Um, and he describes himself, so he says this is not going to be a tightly knit argument. It's going to be a series of loose sketches to give a picture of his philosophy of life. So it's just a series of chapters that are that are meant to give sort of imagined pictures. When um, Chester was younger, he, he started out thinking he was going to be an artist and then ended up being a writer. But, but there's very much a poet and an artist in everything he does. He likened himself to somebody um, taking a journey at the bottom of page 211. I've often had a fancy for writing a romance about an English notchman who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in South Seas. I always find, however, that I'm either too busy or too lazy to write this fine work, so I may as well give it away for the purposes of philosophic concerns. There will probably be a general, and he goes on to say that's probably the best book he's never written. Um, it just, it's like him to... There will probably be a general impression that the man who landed to plant the British flag on the barbaric temple which turned out to be pavilion at Brighton felt rather a fool. I'm not here concerned to deny that he looked a fool, but if you imagine that he felt a fool or at any rate that the sense of folly was his soul or his dominant emotion, then you have not studied with sufficient delicacy the rich romantic nature of the hero of this tale. His mistake was really a most enviable mistake, and he knew it if he was the man I'd take him for. So he describes him as setting out to discover the world only to realize that he had returned home, that he had never left it. What he's saying is there is not a truth that he has discovered. There's nothing original to his work. What awakened him to what was going on in the world, what was wrong with the world at that time, are all the truths of the past. He'd reached a point where he saw all of, all of those truths were had something to them that the modern thoughts and theories didn't have. This at least seems to me the main problem for philosophers and in a manner the main problem of this book. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? How can this queer cosmic town with its many leg citizens, with its monstrous and ancient lamps, how can this world give us at once the fascination of a strange town and the comfort and honor of being our own town. That's the problem of, the, of our life, as he's putting it. The problem each one of us faces is how, how do we combine those two things of being comfortable in the world and not taking it for granted, of finding in the world that there's still something amazing and strange about it, that wonders do take place, How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? Um, 
on page 213. If a man prefers nothing, I can give him nothing, but nearly all people I've ever met in this Western society in which I live would agree to the general proposition that we need this life of practical romance, the combination of something that is strange with something that is secure. We need so to view the world as to combine an idea of wonder and an idea of welcome. There's those alliterations again. That's not an accident him. He has such a capacious mind. He, he can come up with words that say the same thing and, and still express a parallel. That form of parallelism is just so much a part of his style. <clears throat> we need to be happy in this wonderland without once being merely comfortable. It is this achievement of my creed that I shall chiefly pursue in these pages. <clears throat> he defends himself against the charge that he's a player of paradoxes um, in the middle of page 223. By the way, do you guys all have the same edition? Are you guys... <clears throat> no? Okay, I'm in the... Um, I'm two pages away from the end of the first chapter, so... Um, the paragraph, but I have a peculiar reason for meaning the man in a yacht... Um, for mentioning the man in the what? Says he's general accused of, accused of playing with paradoxes. I know nothing so contemptible as a mere paradox. Now I'm I'm reading this because there's no for no way for me to describe Chesterton except as having a very a mind capable of grasping paradoxes. That he's so a the my criticism. I believe that the modern American mind, particularly in American, is too given to black-white. It's either this or that. We don't deal with oppositions very well at all. We don't, we don't resolve them. We, we put them against each other, and it's led to the horrors that we're seeing today. Chesterton is not that way. He, he will see something and find in it its opposite and express it in terms of a paradox. His mind goes around both of them. He does not give up truth, ever. Ever. He's never going to compromise on an issue of truth. Never. But his mind is capacious enough that he, he doesn't see in black-whites. Um, he, he will look at an, a, a writer whom other people describe as being proud. And Chester will make it clear that everything that guy does that seems to be out of pride has a humility in it. He'll point to its opposite in a way that few people see. He, he, his his powers of understanding are just so deep. I know nothing so contemptible as a mere paradox, a mere ingenious deference to the indefensible. If it were true, as has been said, that Mr. Bernard Shaw lived upon paradox, then he ought to be more common millionaire, for a man of his mental activity could invent a sophistry every six minutes. It's as easy as lying, because, uh, <laughs> because it is lying. The truth is, of course, that Mr. Shaw is cruelly hampered by the fact that he cannot tell any lie unless he thinks it's the truth. He goes on and says the same thing about being facetious, that he is not facetious. Um, it's just so hard to describe him. He's not facetious. He's, he's not playing with paradoxes. He, he attempts to get at truths that are deep and open them up so we can see the complexity of them. <coughs> on page, on the, um, the last, next to the last page to the end of the first chapter, I freely confess that all the idi am idiotic ambitions at the end of the 19th century, he says he had. I did, like all other solemn little boys, try to be in advance of the age. Like them, I tried to be some 10 minutes in advance of the truth. 
and I found that I was 1,800 years behind it. I did strain my voice with a painful juvenile exaggeration in uttering my truths, and I was punished in the finest and funniest way, for I have kept my truths. But I have discovered not, not that they were not truth, but simply that they were not mine. When I fancied that I stood alone, I really, I really, it, when I fancied that I stood alone, I was really in the ridiculous position of being backed up by all Christendom. It may be, heaven forgive me, that I did try to be original, but I only succeeded in inventing all by myself an inferior copy of the existing tradition of the civilized religion. What gave him his depth was his grasp of his tradition behind him. It helped him to see around the limitations of each of the positions all these great men were taking at the end of the 19th century. Darwin, Marx, Freud, you name them. The very last page, um, I add one purely pedantic note with, which comes as a note naturally should at the beginning of the book. These essays are concerned only to discuss the actual fact that the central Christian theology sufficiently summarized in the Apostles' Creed is the best root of energy and sound ethics. They are not intended to discuss the very fascinating but quite different question of what is the present seat of authority for the proclamation of that creed. When the word orthodoxy is used here, it means the Apostles' Creed, as understood by everybody calling himself Christian. Now, just it, I, I think you all know this, but in just to emphasize a point I've already made, Chesterton wrote this book before his conversion. He, in one sense, he's nominally Christian. He was raised in a Christian family, but he, he's not a Christian apologist at this point. And yet what he's saying here is that the basis of everything he's going he's, he's going to, if you know the chapters, Elfland, Fairyland, the, the flag of the world, there's nothing overtly catechetical about it. He's a journalist, but he's saying here at the outset that the core, the source of all his thinking is the Apostles' Creed. That the Everything rich in the tradition goes back to the Trinity and Christ. Let me stop. I want to look at the maniac, and what I'd like to do is go through some passages, but any, any comments on this opening chapter? <laughs> Debbie, I'm so glad you... Because I have the same, I've always had the same feeling you had about those opening lines. I just love them. Mark, go ahead. It seems like he's not a guy you want to piss off. Would you would, would you clean up your? How many years has this been? And I've been asking you about your language forever. God, how do I censor you, Mark? It would be hard to do that, Mark. Yeah, I mean Suzanne's right. He he didn't. Um, part, pardon my niceness there. He didn't get angry very easily, Mark. How's that? No, I'm not saying he's angry, but I'm just saying, it, it, you know, that's like, you know, slapping a lion. I mean, it's just something you don't want to do. Because it seems that he comes back at you in such a way <laughs> that is... I, 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 guess it, I guess it would be like getting into a fight with a really nice person. And having him beat you down like a, just like a drum. And him saying, oh, excuse me, pardon me, while he's doing it the whole time. You know, you know, you know Mark, my husband, excuse me, Bob, you might not like this either. He said um, he's the kind of person that 
um, might tell you to go to hell and you would really want to find the way to get there. <laughs> Let me just interject here. I've seen some of, I've read some of Chesterton's debates. But by the way, just know this. All of the men that he's responding to have already written their works. Shaw's a contemporary, so he's writing at the time. But he's, he's responding to major works that have had already established themselves as major influences in that time. So it's not like he's picking a fight or somebody's going against him. It's not just what's happening. He's taking on all the major things because they've already been rooted. When he did get into a debate, just so you know, it, it was never... You know, you don't want to, you don't want to tick this guy off. That that is not. All the people. This is really interesting. I'm glad you made that point. All the people who took the positions they did. This is really important. All the people who took the positions they did absolutely believed in their positions. All of them, Mills, Marx, um, Huxley, um, all of them. Um, in a debate, here's what's interesting. Chesterton never lost it. It, it. It's as if he never took any of it personally. When If somebody took a position in a debate with him, they would take the position. Chesterton would stand up, and in a casual way, as if, I mean, there's just, he took nothing personally. He would respond to whatever the difficulty there was in the, you know, in the, in the other position, and respond to that. His mind was so keenly on that it didn't get to it didn't get to persons. Um, he and George Bernard Shaw um, had a number of debates. Chesterton loved Shaw. It didn't keep him from you know saying the kind of things we saw him say here. In the edition that I've got, and I don't know that you got the edition that I've got is the Ignatius edition. It, it's got um, heretics, orthodoxy, and it's also got the Blasford controversies. Um, it's a set of controversies Shakespeare got involved in because Blatchford, who was a atheist and a socialist, um, ran a newspaper and invited opponents to come in, and Chesterton um, welcomed the occasion and is full of compliments for what the guy did. But he takes that position apart. You said Shakespeare got involved in it? Chesterton. Anyway, he, he just, he did not take things personally. He, he just did not he, he had a, the only the only person I Chaucer's the only person that come to mind. He had this amazing capacity to love people without letting his emotions get in the way of saying the truth of things. Let's let's take a look at. Um, he begins chapter two, the maniac, by saying that to begin with anything, you've got to begin at the beginning. And he describes his um, encounter with this publisher who says of somebody, this is the top of the maniac chapter, the publisher said of somebody, that man will get on, he believes in himself. And I remember that I was, um, that I was lifted. And I remember that as I lifted my head to listen, my eye caught an omnibus on which was written Hanwell. I said to him, shall you tell me where the, the men are who believe most in themselves? Or I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames are fixed, where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in a lunatic asylum. 
Now that seems like an outrageous statement on the surface, but let's take a minute with it. What's he saying and why is he saying it? Here, in fact, let me, let me try to make this a little bit sharpen the edges of it some. In America, everybody's encouraged to succeed, to be self-sufficient. We are a very individualistic society. We pride ourselves. In fact, I, I think it's one of the causes of our current problems. If you, if you make the individual everything, you have no reason for defending marriages or birth or whatever the individual wants, he should be empowered to do. Nobody should discriminate against him. So Chesterton's taking the opposite position. His publisher says, um, there's a guy um, who believes in himself. He'll, he'll get along. Chesterton's saying, that's not true. People who take that position have only one end. It's Hanwell. It's an asylum. Now that seems on the on the surface outrageous. Anybody want to try to make sense of that? No, I don't, Doc. But you should have it in your bedroom. Did you? I did you look? I it's not over there. Well, I don't. Francis. Come on, Francis. What's what's the danger in in believing in yourself? He's saying. The guy who has confidence in himself, in fact, he even uses that image. He says the guy who doesn't have confidence in himself is like a guy who's got a rock in his shoe. It makes him work harder. The guy who has confidence in himself will encounter problems. But what's he saying? What's the problem? Um, what, what's, what's he um, saying here? Can we... I like Matt Mark's word. Can we unpack that? I don't know. That's a. I think when you get too confident in yourself, then you think you're, you almost make yourself the primary person, or even some people even make themselves the god, and you can't live up to your expectations of being this perfect person and I think you can drive yourself crazy and become yeah. a lunatic. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fred, did you want to add something? I didn't know if your light is still on or uh nope. It's not on. Oh. Well it's just I, I think it just what what I was saying earlier is that if if you're so convinced you're right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. You are no longer open to any right. other input from right. any other direction, right? Right, and that's a problem right. because you're not always right. You're human. Yep. Yep. And until until you're willing to entertain the possibility that you might not be right, um, there's there's no room for growth. Yeah, we're right back in Plato's cave. I mean, to to go back to an old image, but yeah. I mean, I think he's describing the people that are sitting around the bonfire, <laughs> watching the shadows on the wall, right? Right. Yep. Well, right. Except in the modern, yes, yes. Except in the modern world, that would be an asylum. You know, I, I, Suzanne and I keep in touch with Bob and Marcy. Bob, fairly regularly, we talk regularly. We can't have a conversation without Bob 
groaning about some protocol. It could be at the store or the dentist's office or the doctor's office. It's just the insanity of people who are caught in a world who do things in a certain way who will not hear you ask questions or raise questions or, you know, it's just... Um, I mean, we all encounter that a lot. That that It's like human beings who've been turned into machines. And I keep laughing a little bit at Bob because I... Um, I mean, my assumption is going in, the world is an insane asylum, and it's worse because the people who think they're the controllers, the ones who are in charge, are actually the ones, the ones most in need of help. But the world is not going to see it that way. If you, if you, if you take Plato's cave allegory seriously, you, it just changes your relationship to the world. You know, you, um, and you're more aware of the way in which people don't question things or... Um, he says, if we're going to start with anything, we have to start with death. The two, thin, the two things that are um, inescapable, unavoidable, are the two things that the ancient world used to start with, sin and death. Um, and he's saying that sin is the one thing in front of you all the time that you just can't deny. It's right in front of us all the time, um, even if we act as if it's not there. He says on page 18, this is in the paragraph that starts, it's true that some speak lightly. He says, A man who thinks himself a chicken is to himself as ordinary as a chicken. A man who thinks he's a bit of glass is to himself as dull as a bit of glass. It's the homogeneity of his mind which makes him dull and which makes him mad. It's only because we see the irony of his idea that we think him even amusing. It's only because he does not see the irony of his idea that he's put in Hanwell. Is that clear? An insane person doesn't see. I mean, he's, he's convinced in his own world that he's got all the answers. It's only because we, we're, if a sane man is capable of outstand, standing outside of that, that we can experience the ironies. It's like Mark's response to Oedipus when you, you, know, you suddenly see this guy doing something. He has no clue of the meaning of what he's doing. So the, the mark of insanity is this homogeneity, this sameness, this uniformity in this small world. Um, the mark of a healthy man is that in some ways he's of that world, but he can stand outside of it to be aware of its ironies. Um, that is that he can laugh at it in some way, because it's not the way it seems. Um, he makes a defense of the imagination because he says on page 219, Poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad, and cashiers. But creative artists very seldom. I am not, as will be seen, in any sense attacking logic. I only say that this danger does lie in logic, not in imagination. He goes on to make the argument that there, there's one poet who actually did go mad. Cooper is, um, actually became insane. But He's making the argument there's a health in the imagination because at least it can introduce you to a fairy world or something outside of a closed system because the danger for the modern mind is to um, it's to put itself in a system, a closed system, where everything's determined. On page 220, it's the paragraph, and if a great and if great reasoners are often maniacal. It's equally true that maniacs are commonly great reasoner. I want to look at this paragraph with you for a second. So if you could go to that. If great reasoners are often maniacal, it's equally true that maniacs are commonly great reasoners. 
When I was engaged in a controversy with a clarion on the matter of free will, that able writer Mr. R.B. Southers said that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless actions. And the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. I do not dwell here on the disastrous lapse in deterministic logic. Obviously, if any actions, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. If the chain of causation can be broken for a madman, it can be broken for a man. But my purpose is to point out something more practical. It was natural, perhaps, that a modern Marxist socialist should not know anything about free. He goes on. I, I want to go back to that statement. That able writer, Mr. R.B. Southers, said that free will was lunacy. God, this, this is actually scary to me. Actually scary. Um, think about the staff of asylums or the, or the people outside of asylums who criticize people whose judgments will put people in asylums. Okay? They make the judgment determining somebody's going to go into an asylum. This guy says that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless actions and the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. Um, make sense of this. I want to make sure everybody understands this because it seems to me this is one of those passages that might confuse. I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't, I don't want to assume anything here. What's he saying? What is Souther saying? And, and what's Chesterton's answer to him? He goes on to say, Mr. Souther's evidently did not know anything about lunatics. The last thing that can be said of a lunatic is that his actions are causeless. If any um, acts may be loosely called causeless, they are the minor acts of a healthy man. Whistling as he walks, slashing the grass with a stick, kicking his heels, singing, you know, singing, whatever. What's the issue here? Mark, go ahead. Is he talking about free will and how if the, the, the free will is lunacy because it means that if God gives you free will to do evil or good, then isn't God creating good or God creating evil? Mark, leave God out of it for a second, can you? Do, just take the thing in terms of free will and uh, whether he believes in God or not for a second. Well, I'm, I'm just... This is one of those things I struggle with on this one. The only, and the only way I could put it is when you talk about free will, you have to talk about you know what God, God gives men free will. That's just, in my mind, how I've got to think about it. Um, uh... Lunacy. He's calling it lunacy, and I don't really understand that unless he means. I mean, I mean, I don't understand what the what that that man does. That he's trying to argue that man doesn't have or shouldn't have free will. Let me put it different. Let me ask. According to Southers, what would a sane man? How would he characterize a sane man? The sane man would acknowledge. Can you, wait, can you all hear, Doc? A sane man would acknowledge all of the, of the scientific experts who say that everything is determined. Um, so the idea that you could have free will, which flies directly in the face of the, quote, science, unquote, um, is lunacy. Lunacy. That's what he's saying. Wait, does everybody understand that? Say it again, Doc. That a sane, a, a lunatic, anybody who says that there is free will is crazy. 
because science has clearly proven that there is no free will, everything is determined. So a sane man... So a sane man would acknowledge that science is right, therefore everything is determined, therefore there is no free will. Yeah. So to deny that would be insane. Or proof, a proof of lunacy, the opposite of sanity, would be that all your, all, all your actions are causeless. Right? That's the opposition. For him, um, all men, all, what's normal is determined. All things are determined. Science has shown that. So a sane man is somebody who acknowledges that all, all that goes on in his life is caused. He's saying a lunatic is different from that because a lunatic, um, all of his actions would be causeless. He, that for him is the mark of insanity. And Chesterton goes on to say, I do not dwell upon the disastrous lapse in deterministic logic. If all things are, if all, well, let's take the step. If you believe in the science that all things are determined, then how can you believe in free will at all? Even in a lunatic. It, it doesn't make logical sense. I hope everybody's seen that. That's just logic 1A. If everything's determined, all things are determined, there can be no free will. Whether you're a lunatic or a sane man. And Southers is saying that a sane man would acknowledge his, the determinisms. A lunatic, a lunatic is different from sane man because for him, um, actions are causeless. There's no cause to them. He can, he can do whatever he wants. Chester's is saying that makes no sense. It does not. It's a contradiction in terms. And then he goes on. I love that line. Mr. Southers ever evidently did not know anything about lunatics. The last thing that can be said of lunatic is that his actions are causeless. This is so important. Have you ever known? I mean, if, if you think about people who have pathologies in an asylum, I mean, his argument is they're never wrong. They're in this little circle. If, if somebody's paranoid, They'll say, that guy out there is after me. And you say to him, but he's not after you. He's not even looking at you. The guy would say, of course he's not looking at me. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's, you know, he doesn't want to get caught. I mean, no matter what reason you give them, they will always have an answer. And Chesterton makes clear the only difference between the lunatic and a sane man is that the lunatic moves in a smaller world. Everything's determined. Everything's caused. He can't get break. He can't get free of it. What you, I mean, what Chesterton is saying is what you want to get that guy to do is take a walk and whistle or look at a bird or bend down and look at a flower or kick a stone or that is actions that are not caused, that are causeless. You do them <coughs> freely. So he's directly going out the difference between most of the thinkers that in that age um, who were determinists and himself, who believed in free will, and, and Chesterton makes this defense over and over again. Because if you take away free will, you take away romance and adventure. Mark, does that, do you have a question still? Does that help or leave God out of it? It's just... um, no, not really. It doesn't help. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I'm struggling with the fact that determinists think that everything is determined by science and I I don't not by science no, no 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 hold on they don't think no science doesn't determine anything 
science is um, a field of study that has as its object those things that are determined in life. Science is the knowledge of them. And science has made it clear, at least in, you know, at this point, that everything in nature is determined. There are all these things that can't be other than they are. Um, if you drop a stone outside of a second floor window, it's going to fall. And they included in that human beings. They came to a point of saying that even human beings were determined. Darwin, man is a product of forces. Freud, man is a product of these forces. Marx, man is a product of these political forces. Um, that there are all these determinisms, and all of them denied man's free will. So all of most of the serious thinkers at that time said all things are caused, determined. And this guy said the mark of a lunatic is that things are causeless. He's outside of that, and Chesterton's laughing at him because that's that's an absolute contradiction in logic. If all things are determined, the lunatic's not going to be able to escape his determinism. He's going to go into a smaller world. He's saying the mark of the mark of freedom is causeless actions. You know, you can walk out a door and go down the three blocks, and if you're single, knock on the door and ask a lady out. Or some nights after dinner, when Susanna is sitting at the table, she'll say, "Do you want to go for a walk?" Not because it was planned or determined. Just because she wanted to go for a walk. And sometimes when we're on a walk, we'll meet people and stop and talk with them. The determinist thinks all those things are predetermined. They're playing Calvinists. Think that way. Shakespeare's saying that's, or I'm sorry, Chesterton's saying that's the mark of madness. To get in one of those worlds that are so closed off that you think all things are determined um, is the mark of lunacy. Any other any can anybody anybody else jump in on this or have a thought or a question or page two twenty two that's the paragraphs um, it at the top on my page two twenty two the madman's explanation of the thing is always complete and often in a purely rational sense satisfactory. He says, you know, the mad people don't lack in reason. It's that they're too caught in it. It defines everything they do. Speak more strictly, the insane explanation, if not conclusive, is at least unanswerable. If a man says, for example, that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all the men deny that they are conspiracists, which is exactly what conspiracists would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. Or if a man says he's the rightful king of England, it's no complete answer to say that the existing authorities call him mad. For if it were the king of England, that might be the wisest thing for the existing authorities to do. If a man says that he's Jesus Christ, it's no answer to tell them that the world denies his divinity, for the world denies Christ. Are you following? Every answer you offer him is exactly the answer some a normal person would give. He, he doesn't lack reasons. This is so clear. I mean, so important. He never lacks reasons, and his reasons are in themselves satisfactory. They they account for something. If you say that, um, if a guy says that he's Jesus Christ, and you say to him, the world de denies his divinity, he'd say, of course, because that's what they did with 
Christ. I mean, it's the same answer. He's saying that people who are mad don't lose reason. It's that they're too constricted by it. Go down on the same page. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it's not the world. There is such a thing as a narrow universality. There is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. You may see it in many modern religions. Now speaking quite externally and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The lunacy's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. You know, we live in a, um, you know, going back to that line, you know, about half the chairs in science and half the chairs in learned. If you if you speak with people in their professions who become specialists, I mean, to go back to the point that Fred was making, they so often have such a complete grasp of something within their specialization. If you try to get into that world or raise questions for them, they like the people in, I mean, um, Fred's example again, the people around the fire. Um, you're not going to crack that world. They're going to have answers always. Um, he says on 2.23, it's a continuation of that, it's a long paragraph, he says, how much happier you would be if you only knew that people cared nothing about you, that is the paranoid who thinks everybody's in a conspiracy against them, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it, if you could really look at other, other men with common curiosity and pleasure, if you could see them walking as they are in their sunny selfishness, and their virile indifference. You'd begin to be interested in them because they were not interested in you. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which you, your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under a freer sky. It's just a, you know, it's a wonderfully clear statement of what Fred was talking about earlier. If you, if you're self-sufficient in and you're the focus of everything, um, you make your world a narrower world. If you could forget about yourself and look at other people, I love that line, if you look at people in their sunny selfishness and their virile indifference um, and see them as not caring about you, it's like you, the shackles break off and you're free and you can move about the world with the humor and an irony and the power for seeing something beyond your own world. Um, on page 225 he lists the causes and I'd like to end on this um, this is um, from that paragraph the, the paragraph begins take the first more obvious case of materialism it's at this point he's going to describe some of the causes of the insanity that he's describing this, these qualities of mind that have, that have characterized the the modern human being. Above that he says, this is the line I quoted earlier, I just described it like my vision of the maniac for this reason, that just as I'm affected by the maniac, so I'm affected by most modern thinkers. That unmistakable mood or note that I hear from Hanwell, I hear also from half the chairs of science and seats of learning today, that most of the doctors are mad doctors in more senses than one. They have exactly that combination and we have noted, the combination of a 
expansive and exhausted reason with a contracted common sense. He repeatedly says that this there's this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. If reason closes in on itself and has no way out, it's a danger to itself. In fact, let me put it this way, if I can put it clearly. If a human being, he's going to say later that the, the cause of this is that reason is unrooted. It's not rooted in a faith. Because even reason itself is a faith. He said, he's not going to religion right now. He's just saying, reason by itself can't defend itself. Um, if you reach a point in your life where you say, I want to end my life, and I've got these reasons, who's to, who's to say against you? The point he's making is that reason by itself can destroy itself. It can't defend itself by itself. It can do its own harm. If you don't bring something else with reason, reason can close you in a small world and keep you there. So he's concerned about this modern temper. And on 225, he gives, there are a number of, of causes that he gives. The, the two that are prominent are materialism and skepticism. Um, 225, take first the more obvious case of materialism. As an explanation of the word materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. It has just the quality of the madman's argument. We have at once a sense of it covering everything in the sense of it's um, leaving everything out. Let me just stop because there's too much to go in here. But I want to take each one and give a minute to it. Why is materialism a danger as Chesterton presented? What's the danger here in in the, the belief in materialism, that matter explains everything. <clears throat> Some people use the word monism. One, that all things have their source in matter, that matter explains everything. What's, what's wrong with that? You've read it, so what are Chesterton's arguments? What's his concern? What's the danger with materialism? Bottom of 226. Um, a Christian is only restricted in the same sense that an atheist is restricted. The fact that I'm an atheist means I cannot believe in God. The fact that I am an or a Christian means I do believe in God. Christian is only restricted in the same sense that an atheist is restricted. He cannot think Christianity false, continue to be a Christian. The atheist cannot think atheism false and continue to be an atheist. But as it happened, there's a very special sense in which materialism has more restrictions than spiritualism. Mr. McCabe thinks me a slave because I'm not allowed to believe in determinism. I think Mr. McCabe a slave because he's not allowed to believe in fairies. He could have said miracles. Chesterton will go on to say, um, as a Christian, excuse me, go ahead. as a Christian, he's free to believe that some things are determined because he does believe that. But as a Christian, he's also he also knows that there are, he believes in free will, and he also knows that miracles take place. If you're a materialist, 
you don't believe in God, you may be free to believe that there are things that are determined. Are you free to believe that there are some things that are not determined? No. So if a miracle happens, you'll try to find an explanation for it or dismiss it. Let me stop here. Some of you are... He says... If we examine the two vetoes, we shall see that his really is much more a pure veto than mine. The Christian is quite free to believe that there is a considerable amount of settled order and inevitable development in the universe, but the materials is not allowed to admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck of spiritualism or miracle. Is that clear? You all look, I'm, I have a feeling, are you okay? Chester is just being very logical. He's just got such an amazingly good mind. If you begin with the belief that everything is explained by matter and everything's determined, you you can make no place for miracles. Right? If you're a Christian, you believe that there is a settled order, there's an order to the universe, that there are determinisms, but you also believe that men have free will and that miracles do take place. So if you compare the two systems, in some ways they're similar, in some ways they're very, very different. A Christian has a greater freedom. He can explain a lot of the physical world, just like the way the determinists can, but he also makes a place for miracles and he can use reason mm, to make sense of faith sometimes. Things that happen by through miracles, through miraculous things. Let me stop because I... Um, I had the sense when, you know, the, in looking at this, that those two sections were fairly direct and fairly clear, but that's not the impression I'm getting from you guys, so give me your questions. Barbara, do you have a question? What, what, do you have a question about Chesterton's argument here? I'm still digesting Chesterton's <laughs> argument, so I will continue to look at it and let you know next time we meet. Okay. The first chapters I was really lost in. When I got to six, I started beginning to get better. So now what's left for me to do is to go back. back. Yeah. Because it took me a while just to get to the point where I felt like I wasn't lost all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Barbara, I think that's so, I mean, I think that, you know, I've said this to you guys before. Um, when we were reading the Iliad, I, I remember saying, you guys are going to be lost for the first half of the book. Hold on, it'll begin, to, you know, halfway through it'll begin, because your sense of something gathers, it becomes more familiar. That's true of every book. The first time you read it, there's no way you can make sense of, there's none. You can make, it's just, there's too much going on that you can't, you don't see the whole um, I think it's true of Chesterton. The, the longer you stay with him, the, the more familiar he becomes, the more you get used to thinking, because it's not like a novel. In a novel, we're, our senses are involved. You know, we're seeing things. Here, he's, he's challenging our minds, you know, in, in every paragraph. So he's forcing us to think, and I really think it takes time to get used to that. If you were to go back and read 
the first chapters, um, you'd, you'd find a, a clarity in some of the things that you wouldn't have experienced when you're going through them. That's just well, another challenge. Yeah, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you said it. But the only thing that I can say to all of you is just be patient and, you know, stay, a, a whole intellectual world of amazing thinking in this extraordinary man um, will get rich for you. You'll find your mind understanding things that it didn't before. Um, I, I want to. We're almost at time here. Does anybody have any questions about materialism and why it's a danger here? As Chesterton's presenting it. And remember, he's responding not only to the great thinkers, but he's responding to what the popular mind does with these theories, these scientific theories like evolution and materialism. Because he's very critical of evolution, too. Um, he'll make that clear in the next chapter. If something keeps changing, there's nothing, there's nothing there to know, but that's another. Anybody else on materialism, why it's a danger? Uh, the only thing I can think of is that if you chase materialism, you chase things, or the want of things, in the end you can have them all, but you still don't have anything. You've just got stuff. It's, it's meaningless stuff. Yeah. That's that's the only thing I can if that's not it then I'm completely lost in this chapter. Well don't don't give don't make it please don't make it black and white this quick, Mark. the question here is how does it lead to a loss of reason? If you if you believe that matter explains everything, in what sense will that move in what sense will that undermine the workings of your mind? It will lead you to Hanwell. Because that's his argument. That these modern philosophies are doing things to undermine thought, freedom, the way we use our minds. They're actually inhibiting people and in, and in dark ways. It's leading men to... Re the, the, the modern term in, in academia would be reductive. It's leading people to think in these very reductive ways. It's shrinking the human person. Remember Flanner O'Connor's image of the shrunken pygmy in uh, Heart of the Park when they go into the museum and they see this human being, it's these shrunken things. It's her image of what's going on to modern man. If evolution's, if, if popular evolution, um, Freud, Marx, if they're all right, then the human being is this shrunken product. If, if, God's, or if man's made in God's image, you've got a, a very different idea of man. So the question I'm asking here is, in what way does materialism as a philosophy, because lots of people hold it, that everything is explained by matter, there is nothing but matter. In what way does that affect your thinking? In what way does it undermine it or inhibit it? Or Barbara, is your light on? Did you have a thought? My light's not on. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Tracy, go. I had a, a, I had a colleague who ex went through a really crazy cancer surgery, and had, um, it, you know, made it through and so forth. But just because there was no, there was this thought that there was nothing when you die. 
um, I can imagine that that's a kind of materialist thing. If everything is rooted in matter, then the, when your matter dies, there's nothing. Right, right. And so, um, um, what was I going to try to say? That it, Chesterton says this, you know, that it reduces, it does away with your humanity, all your hope, your courage, because what point is there, what is hope if there is nothing yeah, right. when your matter dies? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it just terribly shrinks your world. Let me, let me, because we're, sorry, the second thing on, on my page, 229, 228, of course it's not only the materialist that all of this is true, the same would apply to the other extreme of speculative logic. So there's one extreme that says all there is is matter. So reason can grasp matter. And you've got the modern scientists working on that premise that they can grasp these laws of matter. They're all determined. But he says there's something at the other extreme. There is a skeptic far more terrible than he who believes that everything begins in matter. By the way, the other thing to say about that is matter does not explain itself. Matter does not explain itself. I mean, you're always going to explain matter by referring to something else that's going to be material. So, But he says there's something far more terrible than the person who believes that everything began in matter. It is possible to meet the skeptic who believes that everything began in himself. He doubts not even the existence of... He, he doubts not the existence of angels or devils, but the existence of men and cows. He'll go on and on, but the second person, or the second tendency he's alarmed about is the skeptic. Why? What's the danger of skepticism? Because look, you've got somebody at one end using reason saying everything's explained by matter. At the other extreme you got saying nothing is there. Everything's doubtful. You can't trust anything. So he's looking at two extremes of the way in which people use reason. Okay? And now he's dealing with the skeptic. What's the danger for the skeptic? This is the one that, um, on whom he ends the... What's the danger of skepticism, you guys? If you, what's wrong with doubting everything? What's the danger of that? Descartes, who's the, who's the... Wait, just so you know, I mean... If you look at the philosophic tradition from Plato and Aristotle up through Thomas, you've got a realist tradition. The modern world begins with Descartes. And Descartes takes the position because of the Copernican Revolution, because of science. He wanted to base a philosophy on science, so he tried to mathematize it. So for him to philosophize meant he had to doubt everything. It's called Descartes' dream. He had to doubt everything as if he were in a dream, so he could question everything again and on that basis form a new philosophy and that's the beginning of modern philosophy Descartes, Kant and the others who follow him. What's the problem with doubting everything? Make the, Get out of Chesterton for a minute. Go into your own lives. I'm serious, get out of Chesterton because this to me is what's the problem with doubting everything? Get away from Chesterton for a minute. Tracy, go ahead. Did you, or Barbara, sorry. Francis has his hand up, I think. Or Fred Francis have their hand up. Barbara, Fred go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, 
whoever doubt means that there's no hope I don't want to walk around doubting everything because then nothing is positive or is nothing even there <laughs> Fred no. Matt, Fred there's no truth yeah there's no truth it's not even no truth if you doubt everything what what it Fred I'm gonna I gotta stop Fred you go ahead what's what's the problem with doubting everything well, for me, skepticism is even worse than materialism because at some point you realize that, you know, matter can never really explain anything. It is what it is. And it was the theoretical physicist who took that and actually made something from it. And that, that begins that expansion of the mind. If you're, if you're, if you're a skeptic, and I've actually, I've actually worked with someone that falls into this category you never build any kind of foundation because you you start with one premise but then you find fault with that premise and then you move on to something else and you ultimately never build any kind of foundation to establish anything off of right. so you basically are empty because you you can't find truth in anything and in that sense you know you probably are going to wind up in uh, uh, you know because it's got to be you know and I like I said I knew someone that, that falls into that category and it was it was exhausting <laughs> because you, you can't reason with those people because yeah. Yeah. the minute you try to lay something out it's like no, no, that that can't be right. Right. You know, so it's, yeah, that's that's what I think he's getting at anyway. Yeah. Anybody else? We've got to wind this up, but let me hear. From, I'm just honest, honestly. I'm asking from a very practical. Chesterton's not doing anything that any one of you wouldn't do. He's he's a much greater writer than any of us, and but he's laying out a pretty basic position. Debbie, what's wrong with skepticism? With doubting everything. <coughs> I'm asking everybody now from just a purely, from your purely, purely practical point of view, from your own experiences. Well, I really think that, that Fred said what it is, is if, if you don't, if you can't trust anything, I mean, if you are skeptical of everything, then there, you have no um, basis for moving forward. Absolutely none. Yeah. Because you yeah. won't believe that, believe in anything. Right. Um, and and I think that you're going to have a totally empty life, um, and, and I think Fred's right. If if someone is skeptical of everything, it's going to drive them crazy, because you can't have a foundation to build any kind of life on. Yeah. Or any kind of thinking. There's there's certain right? things you have to you have to have some fundamental. This is what I believe. Yeah. And that that's. It may just be a truth for you, but if you're skeptical of everything, you can't even, you can't do that. Yeah, just to let you guys, sorry, go ahead. Doug. You can't think. There's no, there's no way to think. You can't. Because there's nothing there to think about. Because there's right. nothing. Right. So did, did you hear Suzanne? You can't think because if there's, because thought has to have an object. If you say that everything's doubtful and there's nothing there, you have nothing about which to think. I mean, your mind will, but here, let me go back because I want to, this is, we're winding up. One of the fundamental problems with modern philosophy, 
centers on what happened with Descartes and Kant and all those who followed. Because Descartes said, I have to doubt everything. Um, the, the realist, Plato, Aristotle, go back, Thomas, the realist would say you always begin, I, I want to say this because there's a real danger in our world to say, um, it's true for me. If it's true for me, it's true. That relativism or subjectivism. Thomas, Plato, Aristotle, all of those would say, you begin with your senses. So Debbie's sitting in a chair. Sue's looking very relaxed. Um, Karen's at the beach <laughs> somewhere. Um, you know, you're all, we're all, the desk in front of me is real. I can write on it. I can count on it holding my book. If I doubt that this desk's here, why, why would I ever put a book down on it? Because if I doubt it, there's no reason for it not to go through the desk and fall. If you don't, so the realists would say, you start with what's self-evident to your senses, and if there's somebody in the crosswalk, you stop. You just don't go through doubting. You know, I mean, if you start doubting everything, the world is chaotic. There's no meaning. There's no order. There's nothing. I have a, I have a pretty strong skeptical side of my character. I mean, I, I'm guarded, but I'm not a skeptic anywhere near a skeptic. To be a skeptic means you doubt every. I mean, the way Chester is talking about it. To doubt everything is to undo your life. So here in the opening chapter called, what, The Maniac? He's talking about those tendencies in the modern world that have come into being once um, Christendom collapsed. 16th century. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. Once Christendom collapsed, and now we've got these modern habits of thought, materialism or skepticism. He's ending the, um, the maniac with these um, two, two types of threats to the modern mind, the, the kind that's likely to lead to a person's... I don't want to use the word insanity. That's the word he's using. It's, it's going to lead people to undermine their own powers of intellect. They won't be able to do everything they could with their minds because the way they start undermines them. It undercuts them. What he's trying to do is, is he's, he's making the argument um, that a healthy life is one in which things that are familiar combine with things that are strange. That we look at the things around us and know that they're real and still know that there's some wonder or a possibility for miracles. It's, in, it's important for the sense of romance or adventure just to live life in any meaningful way to keep those two things alive. When they shrink, when somebody combines these, this sense of narrowness that they've got reasons for everything with a spiritual contraction that their mind can go on and on and on and on and never stop, but spiritually they're contracted, you're approaching insanity, a kind of madness. So... This is the opening to his book. Let me stop because it's way past time. Any last comments before? We're not going to meet again till August, so you got plenty of time to reread the first, <laughs> the first two chapters. If you read them, you'll see that you know he he's such a he just goes on, but there is an order to his thinking. Like at the end of the chapter, he he takes materialism and skepticism as two, you know, we can look at those and see two distinct threats to our modern mind. 
Um, it takes a little bit of work, but he, but I think it gets easier and easier as you stay with him. So, any questions or comments before we leave? You guys enjoy Chesterton. I know he's a challenge. Um, I know he's a challenge. Bill Buckley, whom I greatly admired when I was growing up, said, how did he put it? He said, Buckley was a great thinker. I mean, I don't know if you, if you go back that, you know, Bill Buckley was a great champion of conservative thinking 40 years ago, but his comment on Chesterton was he says, Chesterton sometimes gets overwhelming. <laughs> I love him. I love him. But anyway, you guys be safe. Um, I will miss you guys. It would be great to hear from you once in a while over break. So we'll take July off. Those of you who are going away, trips, enjoy your trips. Be safe. Um, enjoy your time with your families. Um, I hope you'll keep up with Chesterton. He's, he, he's a delight. He gets easier and easier to read. And, and you'll find something enriching. You'll just find yourself getting richer in your thinking as you read him. So, um, anyway, bless you guys for the next month, okay? You all, you all stay safe. Happy Bye. July. Thank See you. you next month.